I'm looking at my window at my Adirondack guide boat. The Adirondacks became one of America's first big vacation destinations in the 19th century. Emerson has a great long poem about traveling down the Raquette River in the Adirondacks. It was a fairly easy place to reach by steamboat and then by train or canal as as uh, inland transportation opened up, facilitated by the Erie Canal, Clinton's Folly. So you could reach the Adirondacks, but they were still remote, and people used to travel around there, and there used to be whole flotillas of these uh, canoe-like double-ended boats. They were super light. The guides would carry them on their backs while their sport walked along, going from pond to pond or river to river. They're incredibly fast. They're the known as the fastest fixed-seat rowing, traditional rowing boat. Mine can cover some ground. I put a lot of miles under it. It had a hard life. It started out in uh, when I lived in Salem, and it had a lot of saltwater miles on it in the Salem Sound area and the Gulf of Maine, as well as the rivers, the Ipswich, Parker, some of the river systems around Massachusetts, the Charles, of course. I built the boat 25 years ago, and... I had to learn a lot of different skills to to build it in addition to woodworking skills, of course, and boat building skills. There was also caning seats and doing some basic metal forming. And there was a jeweler from the Blue Mountain Lake region in the Adirondacks who made the Orlocks 40 cast them for me. I mean, not just for me. had patterns. He'd done them for other people. He'd done restoration work. That was an extravagant luxury at the time. I built the boat on a on a real shoestring, but then saved up for the right oar locks because they really made the look of the boat, but they were almost as expensive as as the rest of the boat. Now it's stripped bare. It doesn't have any gunnels on it. It's uh, The decks had rotted. Part of the stem had rotted. I'm doing a major restoration on it at this point. But that's good. It will maybe get another 25 years, which is about all I've got left probably, so maybe I can get back to putting some miles underneath that thing. It really is a, a beautiful boat to row. I built it when I finished college. I've always had a strong need to build something after I finish some intellectual task. I built the sailboat I sail when I got tenure my university position. I think that making things is a pretty fundamental, pretty human thing. And I'm not sure it comes out of, I think, a mixed impulse. We have the maker movement now, which is, I think, a lot of mostly middle-class people getting into making things because, like me, their their tasks are mostly intellectual, their labors are mostly invisible, and they want to sort of see the visible product at some point. I think also in a world of plastic perfection, we like some things that are imperfect. We can see the mark of human hands on things 
It makes them a, a different type of object than something made. I've got no real opinion on the maker movement. I don't really consider myself part of it. I think I've just always had a strong desire to make things. People in my life made things. My grandparents, you know, my granny canned anything she could can. My granddad welded things together and fixed things and just sort of got by with what they had. A lot of my stuff that I made early on was that way. I mean, when I built my guideboat, it was every extra cent I had to get together three or $400 for materials. And I built a boat that was just really a great boat. I couldn't have couldn't have bought a plastic canoe for that amount of money at the time. Or maybe I could have, I guess. But part of it was just wanting a good thing and getting it cheaper. But on the other hand, there's something more elemental about it. Something more human about making things. And I've always been interested in it. I think the maker movement just participating in that urge to be human in a world that works against it at a certain level. I think in general, sort of DIY movements have been connected to technology and technological development, at least in the 20th century. Again, I think before that, people like my grandparents were just doing practical things so that they could have stuff that they wouldn't have been able to have otherwise. I still kind of think about it in those terms, even though I'm middle class at this point and can buy things. I, you know, built the boat I sail. I built the guitars I play. I built the some of the furniture I sit on. And I think about it in terms of of money, but I could probably buy those things. But I definitely prefer the things that I've made. My guitars, I just, by the time I've shaped the neck of a guitar, my hands have been on it so much, it's like I've been playing it for years, I'm ready to play it. When I pick up a store guitar, I just don't prefer it. I have a roughly copy of a 52 Telecaster. It's not a museum quality reproduction, it's just my ordinary guitar. I play it every day, I take it to the gig. Back when there were gigs, before this quarantine thing. I patterned part of it after a friend's 52 Tele reissue, which is a really nice high-end guitar. I wouldn't trade it for mine for anything in the world. I just do not prefer it, so there might be something to that. But again, I think any time that things get super polished, super put together, super fancy, there's an amateur counter-revolution against that think about disco music disco music was awesome in so many different ways i mean it was intergenerational it was multicultural it was there was a kind of fluidity about all of it sexually in terms of gender in terms of social class poor kids who could dance well in the nightclub with mick jagger punk was a strong reaction to that and Part of that was class-based. Part of it was racialized in a way that I don't know that I want to talk about right now, but I would like to take up at some other point. But it also was something of a 
DIY amateur counter revolution. Things were too slick, too well produced. The musicians were too good. Marcus Miller was just a kid then. He was playing bass on all of those records. He's just so phenomenally good. Comes from this great jazz pedigree. Wynton Kelly was his uncle. Wynton Kelly, who played on Kind of Blue with Miles Davis. Wynton Kelly's trio with Jimmy Cobb, who just died last week. We're on those West Montgomery records. Anyway, Marcus Miller's still around. He's a a true ambassador for music, but that music was just so good that it was unapproachable. You couldn't make it yourself. So punk, you could just get some cast-off vintage equipment and turn it up loud, and you could do it yourself, and there was an appeal to that. I think it's not unlike the folk revival of the 1950s. You know, the New Lost City Ramblers were not hillbillies from West Virginia. They were New York City guys. But they sort of appreciated the humanity and the immediacy of that kind of homemade, handmade music, and they wanted to participate in in making it. They wanted to make it themselves. A lot of this is connected to the American South and traditions and that, and I think people from other regions of the country admiring the way some of these traditions have lingered. I've talked before about the way California eats its dead and removes its history, and it's harder to see, but I think in remote areas of the South, things persist a little bit longer. In the 1960s, there were the Foxfire books teach you how to build log cabins and make illegal liquor and get the eyeballs out of a hog. Bounded ash, packed baskets, all kinds of really cool stuff in those books. I used to be fascinated by those books, also by the Whole Earth Catalog, Helen and Scott Neary's Living the Good Life, the Back to the Land movement was something that at different intervals has been appealing to a lot of Americans. I think for a lot of people, I'm not sure why, and I'm not sure that they're right, but there seems to be a certain amount of virtue in making your own thing, and the more you made on your own, the more virtuous you were. And I don't know if I believe in that or not. I don't know if there's virtue attached to it, but there's something for me that's really, really satisfying about making things. When my daughter was tiny, I'd ask her what she wanted to do. What do you want to do, sweetie? Maybe we could make, she would say. <laughs> it, was, it was so interesting. That was before I'd ever heard of the maker movement, you know. And... uh to her, the idea was just we would make. It didn't really matter what we did, but if we made something, that, that was an activity that was satisfying to us. So she's like, I don't, you know, she didn't care if it was clay or if it was painting or if it was building a boat in our living room. 
just the idea was that we would do something that would produce something and we'd have a record of it at the end. Again, I think that visible record of the thing is important. Maybe that's why I'm making these podcasts. Now that we're out of school and probably teaching online next semester, I'm not talking in front of rooms of people like I normally do. Maybe I want to just see that process continue. But also, I think one of the things that's difficult about that line of work is you talk and it goes out into the world and then it's gone and you don't see a record of that. I think that producing a product is important to people. You know, in Chauvet Cave in France or the Cuava de los Manos in Santa Cruz, Argentina, some of these ancient, ancient artworks that are preserved. Lascaux and many of the French sites show a lot of animals, you know, bulls and things, animals that ancient people herded and hunted. But they also show, and in that Cuavo de los Manos sort of shows in spades, um, a lot of paintings of hands. Just a hand, and uh, you can look on YouTube and see demonstrations of this, but the way historians think they were done is there was a kind of a spray gun, spray can, that ancient people developed. They would take a gourd, a round gourd, cut the top off of it, put a straw into it, a little hole on the other side, and they put the pigmented material, the paint, whatever, in that, and then they would blow through it, and it would express that paint out through the little orifice on the thing, and it, it functioned pretty much just like a an airbrush does today. And the way they made those paintings, they would hold their hand up and use it as a, as a, what do you call it, stencil, I guess. And so the paint would go mostly around the hand and show the record of the hand. And it's fascinating. I mean, it basically is there to say, hey, I had a hand. I made this. You're looking at a made object, not a natural object. You're looking at the human ingenuity that turned nature into culture. It doesn't come from, you know, natural forces or it doesn't come from spiritual forces. Well, it might come from spiritual forces, but they're very human. A person had a hand. And hands made this stuff. That's so important to me. I don't I don't really know why. I mean it just is. I, I just we have all these things that don't have the record of human hands on them. You know that bluegrass song Pilgrim? I got a home in that yonder city and it's not made by hand. 
I mean, the idea in that song is it's made by God, and so it's it's divine. These objects that don't look like they're made by hand, like electronics, cellophane-wrapped food, eggs that are all the same size. Do any of you have chickens? Eggs are not the same size. They masquerade as something divine, but they're not. They're false gods for us to worship. And we can destroy their false gods by making real ones out of things that show the marks of the hands and the tools on them. I guess, I don't know. I mean, this is... We're getting into Henry Adams' territory here. You know that essay, The Virgin and the Dynamo? Talks about seeing an electric dynamo at the Chicago World's Fair or the Harding, the Paris, I don't know. Paris World's Fair. I don't know where he saw it first. I think he saw it at both. Adams was a crank, though. He's just lamenting that the world has left him behind. And I think that it's the way to counteract the idea that the world is leaving you behind by making these things that are unapproachable that you couldn't possibly make is to make something useful that shows that you can make it and that's getting more and more accessible and more and more available and I think also maybe it's important to try to when you're making that stuff to not just use your milling machine your 3d printer and your laser cutter but also to make something that shows the marks of the tool and also it shows the natural material if I'm right that technology is the way we turn nature into culture I think both the nature and the culture should be preserved in that or not should be there are no shoulds I don't know but it's interesting to me when they do it's interesting to me that those paintings are on cave walls while we were living here, we did this thing. They're not hanging in an art gallery. They're not removed from the living space, the production, consumption, and the record of it is all contained within the same spot. I guess that's what's behind my impulse to make things and to populate the space I live in with things that I made because it shows that I lived there and that I was human and that I made those things and that I can have hands and that I can pick them up and they are a record of the activity and the human ingenuity that made those things. Through making the guitar that I play every day, I've attempted to humanize my self and humanize my space. And I don't know if it's working or if it's not working, but it's working better for me than not doing it. So I think I'm just going to keep on doing it.